Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. We talked in our first episode of Done and Done about the original black and white ball. This event, hosted by Dominic and Lenny in 1964 on the occasion of their 10th wedding anniversary. As you recall, Truman Capote does attend that event and gets all sorts of ideas for his 1966 black and white ball, the one that goes down in history, the one that we're still talking about today. As Truman Capote will feature in the coming weeks on our Done and Done episodes, I thought it might be a fun journey today to talk about Truman Capote's November 1966 soiree. It is a party to remember. With the summer season officially kicking off, let's have a little fun today. Let's investigate. On November 28, 1966, over 500 of the most glamorous and famous people arrived at the Grand Ballroom of the Plaza Hotel for Truman Capote's Black and White Ball. It has been written about and described countless times in different ways, but most often referred to as the party of the century. This elegant and glittering masquerade ball was given in honor of Catherine Graham, but no one really believed it was for her. Everyone knew that Truman threw this elaborate party that would go down in history all for himself. The black and white ball symbolized the pinnacle of his prestige, social status, and glory. He will never again be viewed with the same respect, prestige, or love as he was that night. But, alas, for the night of November 28, 1966, Truman Capote was the undisputed star. Y'all, 55 years later, we're still talking about this party. Lots of notable names on the invitation list. There's paragraphs here, but let me give you some of the highlights. Gianni and Morella Agnelli, Vincent and Brooke Astor, Richard Avedon, George Axelrod, Tallulah Bankhead, Cecil Beaton, Harry Belafonte, Irving Berlin, Leonard Bernstein, Robert Bernstein, Ben Bradley, William Buckley, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, Cass Canfield, Wyatt Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt, Walter Cronkite, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Mel Farrar and Audrey Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Joan Fontaine, Greta Garbo, Winston and CZ Guest, Gloria and Lowell Linus, Leland Hayward and Pamela Hayward Harriman, William Randolph Hearst Jr., Lillian Hellman, Ted and Joan Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, Rose Kennedy, Bobby and Ethel for good measure, Patricia Kennedy Lawford, Harper Lee, Vivian Lee, Jack Lemon, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, Shirley MacLaine, Norman Mailer, Carolyn Walter Mathau, Roddy McDowell, Arthur Miller, Vincent Minnelli, Bill and Babe Paley, Gregory Peck, George Plimpton, Prince Stanislaus and Princess Lee Radzewell, Governor Nelson and Happy Rockefeller, David Oselznik, Sergeant and Uni Shriver, Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow, Stephen and Jean Kennedy Smith, Stephen Sondheim, John Steinbeck, Gloria Steinem, Marietta and Penelope Tree, Alfred and Jean Vanderbilt, Diana Vreeland, Andy Warhol, Jock and Betsy Whitney, Billy Wilder, Thornton Wilder, Tennessee Williams, oh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Anne Woodward, she'll come around later, and Daryl Zanuck. See, in 1966, Truman had recently published his most successful book, the nonfiction true crime novel In Cold Blood. 
This professional success makes Capote even more famous and revered than he had been previously. Personally, however, In Cold Blood may have been his undoing. After this novel is released, Truman really does begin a downward spiral into all of the behaviors that will alienate him from most of his friends and ultimately cause his early death at the age of 59. Truman couldn't have known what he was getting into when he decided to go to Kansas and follow a story he had read about in a newspaper article about the murder of a family. Not only would it take years for the ordeal to end and for his book to be published, it did take a tremendous emotional toll on him as well. When Truman shows up in Holcomb, Kansas, he was nothing, nothing like the townspeople had ever seen. Even accompanied by his conservative and conventional fellow writer and childhood friend, Nellie Harper Lee, Truman does not receive a warm welcome. He's an openly gay man with odd looks and an eccentric style of dressing and speaking in rural Kansas in 1959. Not only that, but the people of Holcomb and Garden City, Kansas, were understandably traumatized by the recent violent murders of four members of a local and really well-known family. Naturally, the townspeople are suspicious and wary of anyone unfamiliar. Truman, though, undaunted by his reception and used to being looked upon with scrutiny and apprehension, he will eventually win the police forces and the town's trust and respect. Capote would be in Kansas on and off until the murderers were executed in April of 1965. He would maintain relationships with some of the locals as well after that. Alvin Dewey, the police agent with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and his wife Marie would end up having a close relationship with Truman, even saying they thought of him as family. They were starstruck when Capote introduced them to his famous friends and they were flattered and shocked when those same famous friends were fascinated by the Deweys at dinner parties. The Deweys would attend the black and white ball and fit right in among the rich and glamorous. Over the course of researching the crimes for his book, Capote spent a great deal of time with the murderers, Richard Hickok and Perry Smith. During his many years with the killers, he developed an incredibly close relationship with Perry Smith. By the time of Smith's execution, Capote had a deep emotional connection to him. Capote saw many similarities between himself and Perry Smith. Smith was an avid reader and was proud of his large vocabulary. The two men were much shorter than average, but more importantly, the two had both had childhoods that left them lacking the stability, love, and acceptance they both needed. Both had parents who abandoned or neglected them, Both also had extremely complicated feelings about their mothers, who were both promiscuous and chose men over their children. Obviously, the two exhibited their emotional deficiencies differently, but both were compensating for childhoods that left them developmentally stunted. Truman clearly saw these parallels in a way that allowed him to relate to Perry and see him as much more than a cold-blooded killer. In fact, he told some friends that he felt that if he had taken a different turn, his unhappy childhood could have led him in the same direction that Perry Smith's had. However, knowing this book could not be finished and become the success he knew it would be until Smith and Hickok were executed, Capote was in a position of great psychological distress. There were some people that speculated that Smith and Capote had become lovers during their visits because Capote had convinced the guards to leave them alone. 
It is more likely that Capote knew Perry Smith would open up to him more about the crimes if no one else was listening. But many people believe that Capote fell in love with Smith to a degree. Smith and Hickok clearly enjoyed the attention they were receiving from Truman and the publicity about his upcoming book. Truman was not completely honest with the killers, though, about the book. He led them to believe that it would be a much more sympathetic depiction than he was planning for it to be. He endeared himself to them also by promising to get them better lawyers and help them with their appeals. To illustrate how much notoriety and attention the killers were getting, Capote had the famed celebrity photographer Richard Avedon come with him to Kansas for a photo shoot of Smith and Hickok. When the final appeal was denied and the execution was set for April 14, 1965, Capote was relieved, but also tortured by feelings of guilt and sadness. The last six years spending time with these two men researching and writing his book was about to come to an end. His masterpiece could now get finished and his career would skyrocket, but not before he watched Perry and Hickok hang. Capote was there in the Kansas warehouse where the two men were executed. Before being taken to the gallows, Smith asked for a few minutes with Capote. Right before he was led away, Perry said, Adios, amigo, and kissed him goodbye. Capote described witnessing the execution as, quote, the most intense emotional experience in his life, unquote. He wept the whole flight back to New York, but his complicated and conflicting feelings did not subside. As soon as he returned, he immediately went to work on finishing the book. He told a journalist in an interview later, For three entire days I was throwing up and crying and carrying on. In another part of my mind, I was sitting in quite coolly writing the story. In Cold Blood was a tremendous success even before it was released. The build-up and wait for the book were worth it, and Truman Capote had hit a whole new level of success and fame. He was ready to celebrate. Let's go back in time a little bit and remember the genesis of Truman's black and white ball. Remember in April of 1964, Truman was invited and attended the 10th anniversary party of Dominic and Lenny Dunn. The Dunns had loved the Cecil Beaton-designed ascot scene from the film My Fair Lady, so they decided to have the theme of their party be a black and white ball. The party was held in the Dunn's Beverly Hills home on Walden Drive. They spend months planning their ball. They hire a stage designer to decorate and build sets. To make room for their guests, the furniture was moved out of their house. Invitations are sent to all of Hollywood's A-listers, Natalie Wood, Loretta Young, David Niven, among others. The dress was black tie. The ladies could wear either black or white gowns. The Dunns naturally are concerned about having too many people at the party and the fire department perhaps coming, so they requested of their guests no one bring anyone uninvited. The Deweys at the time were in town and Truman kept asking the Dunns if he could bring them until Nick and Lenny finally relented. Truman had a tremendous time at the party. He was impressed by the atmosphere and decor the Deweys also had a fabulous time and were, much to their surprise, the center of attention. The Dunn's 10th anniversary black and white party lasted till 4 a.m. It would become the main inspiration for Truman's famous black and white ball at the Plaza Hotel two years later. 
Although Dominic and Lenny helped galvanize Truman Capote's idea for his star-studded gala, even allowing him to bring uninvited guests to the party, they would not be extended an invitation to Truman's black and white ball. But Truman can't throw a ball for himself. That's a terrible look. So how does Catherine Graham get chosen to be the honoree of this soiree? As over-the-top and audacious as Truman Capote was, he knows it's not socially acceptable for him to throw such an elaborate party for himself. This presents a dilemma for him, though, because his swans were not really an option for his guest of honor either. If he chose any one of them, it would cause enormous jealousy amongst the others. Also, there was really not a reason or occasion to honor any of them this way, so he had to look elsewhere. Truman will consider a few options, including baby Jean Holzer, Amanda Mortimer Burden, who is Babe Paley's socialite daughter. Both baby Jane and Amanda Mortimer Burden are part of the younger, hot social set of New York City. The younger generation at the time is being given a lot of attention. Time Magazine had recently dubbed the 25-er under-generation 1966 Man of the Year because of the popular youth movement. Ultimately, Truman decided that while these young women would gain a great deal of media attention from the party, they were too young to be honored with a party of this kind of caliber. Capote had recently become close to Catherine Graham after going on a Mediterranean cruise with her aboard the Agnelli's yacht. Truman decided she was a perfect choice. She was well-known and highly respected, but she was not particularly beautiful or an object of envy. In fact, she was an object of sympathy for many people because her husband, Phil Graham, had shot himself in their family home a few years earlier. Far, though, from being a pathetic and grieving widow, Catherine had recently taken over the helm of her family's company, the Washington Post. She was daily proving herself to be a confident and capable woman. Nonetheless, once Truman decided that she would make the ideal guest of honor, he called her and said, Honey, I've just decided you're depressed and need cheering up, so I'm going to give you a party. Catherine was at a spa vacation with her friend Polly Weisner when she received Truman's call. She was amused by the idea, but told Truman that she was absolutely fine and did not need cheering up. It didn't matter what Catherine Graham said. Truman Capote had decided she was going to be the guest of honor, and he would not be persuaded otherwise. While Catherine Graham was not the obvious choice for Truman, it was still likely a very strategic one. Graham's family not only owned the Washington Post, but had also recently acquired Newsweek. She was an extremely important woman in America, and she had the press wrapped around her finger. He got to look like he was doing something magnanimous while garnering a great deal of free publicity at the time. Now, from the time Truman makes the decision to throw his party until the guest list was turned over to his secretary, he carried around a black and white composition notebook that he did not allow anyone else to see or touch. This notebook was his guest list. Names would be jotted down or crossed off depending on his mood, something someone had said, or a look that he may not have liked. He wasn't just making an invitation list, he was assembling a cast, and he wanted it to be perfect. Truman wanted interesting and accomplished people from all sides of life. He didn't want it to be just the New York social scene group, nor merely a Hollywood group, or only writers and intellectuals. 
he was going to have all of those people at his party. People who would never otherwise be in the same room together would gather in the Plaza Ballroom for his event. Many famous names were considered, then reconsidered, and then crossed off. These people likely didn't know how close they were to making the cut. Likewise, there were many people who were reconsidered one last time and put back on the list that never knew how close they were to not being invited. Some of the unlucky ones to have their names included, only to be crossed off later, were David Brinkley, Doris Duke, Yul Brenner, and Danny Kay. Finally, Truman writes the last name to receive an invitation, Herman Levin, the producer of the Broadway version of My Fair Lady. Capote's cast of politicians, intellectuals, diplomats, socialites, actors, financiers, and the few who didn't fit into any of these categories were selected. This was unprecedented in its variety of attendees. In the end, 540 people dressed in black tie and garnered a mask to attend the party of the century. Truman knew that he wanted his party to be held in the ballroom of the Plaza Hotel. He said his reason was because it's the only beautiful ballroom left in the United States. His friend, Philip Surf Wagner, thought that his reasons were not just because of the beauty of the room. She believed that the plaza's hotel history, traditions, and atmosphere of prosperity and power were supremely important to Truman. F. Scott Fitzgerald had used the Plaza Hotel to signify status in The Great Gatsby, and Truman would use it to announce his status to the world. To design the perfect masquerade ball, Truman Capote hired popular society decorator Evie Backer. He challenged her to come up with something entirely different than anything else that had taken place at the plaza. Her approach was simple. She convinced Truman to let the swans and all the other beautiful people be the main decor. Backer's design plan was to have no oversized floral centerpieces, no trellises, no overpowering drapes or patterns. There would be only classic golden candelabras wrapped with simple green vines. Truman and Evie were seen lunching early that fall at many of the fashionable restaurants in New York City, like La Cote Basque, La Grenouille, Lafayette, and The Colony. Truman was always clutching his notebook. During one of their lunches, Evie suggested that President Harry Truman should be included on the invitation list. Capote ignored this suggestion, saying there would be only one Truman at the Black and White Ball. The party would begin at 10 p.m., and the buffet would be served at midnight. Every detail was discussed and precisely planned. The beverage would be 450 bottles of Tattinger champagne served at four separate bars placed throughout the ballroom. In Truman's mind, the most important element to the plan was the music. Truman asked Peter Duchin, the most popular band leader during the time, to play at the ball. Duchin was handsome, charismatic, and a society favorite. He was the son of legendary band leader Eddie Duchin. Peter's mother died shortly after he was born, and with his father gone touring, Peter was raised by close family friends, Avril and Marie Harriman. After seeing Truman and Evie lunching with his notebook in hand, gossip columnists began talking about the party endlessly. Women's Wear Daily reported, The eye hears Truman Capote is giving a party, a big party. The item ended with, if you haven't received your invitation by the time they're sent out in October, sweetie, you are out. Cecil Beaton thought Truman's party was ridiculous and beneath him. He wrote in his tell-all diary, 
What is Truman trying to prove? The foolishness of spending so much time organizing the party is something for a younger man or a worthless woman to indulge in if they have no social ambitions. Of course, Truman denied that was his intention, but Cecil Beaton knew Truman very well. Once the invitations were delivered, Truman said he made 500 friends and 15,000 enemies. He enjoyed the level of disappointment from those who waited for their invitation without them ever getting one. He will boast, people are practically committing suicide because they didn't get invitations. Most invitees responded with acceptances, but there were some regrets too. Jacqueline Kennedy was not attending any social events in November because of it being the anniversary of JFK's death. Robert and Ethel Kennedy also declined. Elizabeth Taylor was unable to attend because of a film. Audrey Hepburn and Mel Farrar were in Switzerland and could not attend. Marlena Dietrich was in Paris. Shirley MacLaine, Jack Lemmon, and Walter Matthau were all unable to attend because of work commitments. Other invitees unable to attend for a variety of reasons were Samuel Goldwyn, Leonard Bernstein, Mary Martin, Harry Belafonte, James Michener, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, and Tennessee Williams. The best regret sent, though, was from Ginger Rogers, who sent her regrets saying, I don't go to parties. Those who did not receive an invitation responded in a variety of ways. Some tried to reach Truman to beg for an invitation. Some tried to angrily demand an invitation. Others employed strategies they believed were so clever they would trick Capote into giving them an invitation. The most common ploy was to call or write Truman, inviting him to a party they were having on the same night as the black and white ball. They would, of course, feign ignorance about the ball and hope he would say he had forgotten to send them an invite. Truman saw right through the strategy every time. It never worked. Many of those who came to terms with the fact that an invitation was not forthcoming but didn't want to admit they weren't invited would make extravagant travel plans that forced them to be out of town during the ball. This way they had an excuse for why they weren't attending without having to admit they weren't invited. Probably the saddest and maybe most pathetic of all were the ones that actually dressed up in black and white, bought themselves a mask, and went through the charade of attending the party so others would believe they had been invited. Who knows what these people did, actually all dressed up and no place to go. With the official invitation list kept a well-guarded secret, those not receiving the much-sought-after invitation felt safe in their ruses to conceal their embarrassment at being left out. Little did they know, after the party, the invitation list would be leaked to the press and published, much to the chagrin of those who pretended to be on the list. Truman Capote always denied that he had allowed the list to be leaked, but most people agree that he left the list slightly embellished to make the party appear all the more fabulous, alone with a gossip columnist, while he had to leave the room for a few minutes. With all of his publicity savvy, it is unlikely that Truman Capote would have ever made this innocent mistake. So if you're going to a ball, you have to get ready for it, right? Those planning on attending the black and white ball do not waste any time planning their looks for the evening. Everyone knew the event would be highly covered by the media, and no one wanted to be outdone. 
considering the wealth of many on the guest list, no expense was spared. Guests not only wanted the perfect outfit, but they also needed the perfect mask. Many guests opted for classic and simple. Others wanted to be outlandish and unique. Some wanted to combine both extremes. The favored New York City designers, milliners, seamstresses, and hair salons were bombarded with appointments and assignments. The designer Halston made this comment regarding the shopping craze for Truman's party. I've never seen women putting so much serious effort into what they're going to wear. Gloria Guinness turned to Spanish designer Antonio Castillo. Lee Radswell and Maria Agnelli both chose Italian designer Mila Schoen. CZ Guest stuck with her favorite designer, Mainbacher, to dress her in her simple and unpretentious signature style. Pamela Hayward chose to make a statement with her Dior tulle ball gown with five stiff petticoats under the very full skirt. The classic Babe Paley entrusted Bergdorf Goodman to make her custom gown. At that time, Bergdorf Goodman had a custom department that employed 60 tailors, 85 custom dressmakers, 75 alterations experts, 11 pressers, and three hem stitchers. This custom workshop would replicate couture garments from Paris fashion shows. These were authorized versions of the original, unlike cheaper knockoff versions that you would find in normal retail stores. The custom department was always referred to as the factory. Bergdorf's would attend European fashion shows and then pay a fee to obtain the right to duplicate those garments. When each of the chosen garments would arrive in New York, it would come with a document outlining the exact fabric and trimmings required down to the zippers and threads. Each client had their own custom-made dress form to ensure their garments would fit them perfectly. It was Bergdorf's custom department that Jacqueline Kennedy relied on to replicate much of her clothing during JFK's presidency. Jackie always preferred Parisian designers, but JFK felt she should only wear clothing made within the United States. Problem solved. Bergdorf Goodman would exactly replicate the design she wanted. In fact, her 1961 inaugural gown was replicated by the factory, the custom department at Bergdorf's. The factory is also where Catherine Graham turned to to make an exact copy of her chosen Balmain dress. Her dress was simple but impressively stylish and elegant, especially compared to Catherine's typical lack of interest in fashion. Just as much attention was paid to getting the right mask, and unlike the gowns, the men had to deal with this issue as well. The most exciting and fashionable hats at that time were coming from Aldolfo and Halston. During his time as the chief hatter at Bergdorf Goodman, Halston had designed Jacqueline Kennedy's iconic pillbox hat for the 1961 inauguration. Many of Truman's invitees were already loyal clients of Halston and Aldolfo, so it's no surprise when they turned to them for the perfect mask to wear to the black and white ball. Some of the women on that list included Babe Paley, Amanda Burden, CZ Guest, Jean Vanderbilt, Brooke Astor, Jane Reitzman, among others. They all wanted something unique and memorable. Aldolfo especially enjoyed making hats and masks using real feathers. A lot of birds donated their feathers to this cause, joked Aldolfo. His favorite type of feather came from the Spanish rooster because it produced cock feathers. 
Aldolfo would use the plucked, long, curved, iridescent tail feathers that worked so well to make dramatic, colorful statements. These cock feathers held their shape well, so they were not only beautiful, but also reliable. Although some of the attendees went to other milliners or had their masks designed in Europe, the majority relied on their New York City designers to make the perfect mask. Needless to say, these designers and their staff had to work tirelessly to make all of these masks. They committed to ensure that each mask was different and special. Many of the guests, like Babe Paley, ordered numerous masks to be made just in case. However, some of the partygoers turned to other ways of acquiring their masks. For example, Henry Fonda spent two weeks making his wife Shirley's mask. Truman's friends from Kansas made their own masks also. Truman Capote himself paid 35 cents for his basic black mask at FAO Schwartz. He liked it so much, they ended up going back to buy more so he could hand them out to anyone who showed up at the ball without a mask. The gossip columnists could not stop talking about the mask fever happening in the city leading up to the ball. It was a constant presence in the daily newspapers, always accompanied by beautiful illustrations of mask designs, speculations of what the beautiful people would wear, and how much they were paying. Morella Agnelli chose a classically elegant gown, but paired it with an extravagant mask and headpiece. Billy Baldwin, decorator to the rich and famous, also went for this type of combination. He chose a classic tuxedo, but paired it with a dynamite unicorn mask. Annette and Oscar de la Renta decided on whimsical cat masks. Gloria Vanderbilt and Wyatt Cooper showed up looking very dignified and traditional. Rose Kennedy and Eunice Kennedy Shriver opted for masks with elaborate soaring feathers. Gloria Guinness and Babe Paley were their usual beautifully adorned selves. They certainly weren't simple, but they were still classic. Babe's socialite daughter, Amanda Burden, had her dress made directly inspired from the ascot scene from My Fair Lady, but coupled it with a simple mask. Much to the bewilderment of the old guard of the fashion elite, the outfit most talked about in the coverage the next day was worn by up-and-coming teenager Penelope Tree. Penelope was the 16-year-old daughter of socialite activist Marietta Peabody Tree and conservative MP Ronald Tree. Penelope had begun modeling before the black and white ball, but her appearance at the ball shot her modeling career into full gear. Her father was reportedly mortified by her chosen outfit and threatened to not allow her to go, but eventually relented. Penelope wore a Betsy Johnson-designed stretch jersey dress with huge cutouts and exposed panties under her tights. Far from elegant and certainly not confused with classic, Penelope Tree's daring and risque dress choice made the most impact of the night. Truman had organized 16 hosts and hostesses to give pre-ball dinners at their homes. These dinners had been given almost as much preparation and planning as the ball itself. There were expensive caterers, extravagant floral decorations, imported champagne, but many of Manhattan's exclusive restaurants were booked with pre-ball reservations as well. The weather was really crummy the evening of the party, causing many guests to arrive late. Limousine companies were overbooked. 
Taxis were nowhere to be found. The rain didn't stop crowds of onlookers and reporters from gathering all around the plaza, though, in hopes of spotting a glimpse of the beautiful people arriving at the party of the century. CBS was even allowed to film the arrivals live. While planning the ball, Truman had been repeatedly told by friends and security experts that he needed to provide a secret entrance at the hotel for any celebrity guests who wanted to avoid the photographers and reporters. Truman agreed, and the arrangements were made. Ironically, not one person asked to use the secret entrance. Everyone chose to make a grand entrance and to be seen and photographed. Very few guests opted for the elevator either. They wanted to have their moment on the main staircase. Guests had to present their admission cards at the check-in desk before being given permission to move toward the entrance of the ballroom where Truman Capote and Catherine Graham awaited to greet the guests as they arrived. They were then escorted to tables. The dance floor was occupied all night, especially by the younger attendees like Mia Farrow. Many chose not to dance, though, like her husband, Frank Sinatra. Many walked around mingling and making conversation. Some spent the evening watching what the others were doing. Alice Roosevelt Longworth called the ball the most exquisite of spectator sports. The music was a wonderful success, and Peter Duchin made sure to pay homage to any of the composers or musicians at the ball by playing their songs. At 2.45 a.m., despite Truman begging him not to leave, Frank Sinatra convinced the people at his table to leave and go to his favorite hole-in-the-wall bar, Chili's. By 3 a.m., the festivities were winding down, and Truman resumed his position at the entrance in order to thank his guests and say goodnight. A satisfied Capote talked to reporters at the end of the night, saying, It was just what it set out to be. I just wanted to give a party for my friends. So let's talk about after the party and the legacy. Because unbeknownst to Truman, Diana Vreeland had chosen not to attend the ball. She got all dressed up. She posed for photographers, attended the Paley's dinner party, and then instead of going to the plaza, she went home. Her husband had recently died and she just wasn't up for the big event. However, the next day when she spoke to Truman, she acted like she had been there. The coverage and analysis of the party was inescapable. Vogue, Newsweek, Life, Women's Wear Daily, and Time all ran extensive stories and pictures of the party. Newspapers and news shows also gave considerable time and space to discussing the black and white ball. Most of the coverage was flattering and favorable. There were some distractors and negative comments, though. Broadway producer Harold Prince said that when he and his wife approached the plaza and saw the crowds gathered, the first thing that came to his mind was the French Revolution. Actress Candace Bergen told the New York Post that she had found the party boring and wanted to leave. Photographer Frederick Eberstadt overheard the Agnellis and Brandolinis ask, Is this what we flew over for? The biggest criticism about the party was that although the masks were supposed to make the evening more egalitarian and even the playing field amongst all the different groups at the party, guests only talked to the people they knew. George Plimpton commented, I've never seen such ghettoizing in all my life. No group mixed with another group. 
One year after the black and white ball in December of 1976, Esquire magazine featured eight celebrities on their cover with the cover line, We wouldn't have come even if you had invited us, Truman Capote. Hmm? Among the eight featured celebrities were Kim Novak, Lynn Redgrave, Tony Curtis, Pierre Salinger, Ed Sullivan, Jimmy Brown, Pat Brown, and Casey Stingle. This was far from the only negative and biting article written about Truman Capote and the ball in the years to follow. However, once Esquire published Lacote Basque, 1965, in November 1975, the black and white ball was no longer anyone's biggest issue with Truman Capote. If you would like to hear a little bit about how Truman Capote sold out all of his swans in this short story, Lacote Basque, 1965, check out Trashy Divorces. We covered this on an episode just a few weeks ago. Truman Capote, Lacote Basque, 1965. It'll give you all the dish in a kind of a different way, as well as lead you into some of the next stories that we're going to be talking about on Done and Done. The interest and curiosity about this party was enormous. It is ongoing. We're still fascinated by it 55 years later. It's been imitated and replicated by people everywhere. A lot of people want to try to recreate the magic of this, but never forget that Lenny and Nick hosted the original. There are still magazines, newspapers, TV, all still covering Truman Capote's black and white ball with awe and wonder. It is a time and place we'll never see again, attended by legends and personalities we'll never see again. The glamour and mystique surrounding it, I don't think we'll see again either. Whether you like him or hate him, Truman Capote did create an event that the world has talked about going on six decades. The unique combination of talent, charisma, and flair that Truman possessed, something we'll never see again either. We'll have more to come on Truman Capote. His relationship with Dominic Dunn, as well as how Nick uses Truman as an inspiration for his novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, all coming up in future episodes of Done and Done. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hope you enjoyed this sort of fun episode and a deep dive into something associated. I think you'll like the backstory going into future episodes. Thank you again for your kind ratings and reviews and emails and comments. I appreciate you spending your time with me today on this episode of Done and Done. You're the very best. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating, friends. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.